morning as we begin and as we take a moment to pray, let me re read you a couple of words from Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Father, we're here to give praise to you. We're here today because you first loved us and you drew us to yourself. You are the source of our life, of our joy, of our peace. And we give you thanks and we give you praise. And Lord, we invite you to be here even as you promised to minister to each of our hearts, to call us, to challenge us, to direct us. Father, it is through your words that and ask, Lord, that you will minister throughout this property today in every class and in the service, which is concurrent with this time, and pray that your name will be exalted. And Father, again, we are very concerned about the Church of Christ worldwide. We trust that this day will be blessed to the hearts of millions and that there will be many drawn into your kingdom as they hear the word preached. We thank you, Father, for your promises and your presence. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You'll turn to the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel. I'd like to uh, read beginning at verse 31. 1 Samuel 14, 31. And they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aelon, and the people were very weary. And the people rushed <coughs> greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his axe or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. For those of you who weren't here the last couple of Sundays, Saul has been challenged here by the invasion of his land by the Philistines, the, the people who lived over on the west coast of the land. Philistia is right along this coast here. Uh, from Gaza all the way up through here was, a, was the main heart of the Philistine land, but they controlled at least up to the area of Joppa and sometimes beyond. And they had made a penetration clear over here into the heart of Israel. And so Saul, with his army, because of Jonathan's lead, has routed the Philistines. And this particular passage, it just kind of brings us right into the middle of that route, or actually towards the end of it, end of that day, and uh, is, is here. And, and you know, when you, when you read a passage of Scripture, you just pull it right out of the middle. Sometimes you say, whoa, what does all this mean? And that's why I think it's important always to study Scripture in context. And, of course, we're doing that in the sense of the context of the whole book of 1 Samuel. What we're looking at here is, again, a, a result of the folly of Saul's attempt to make this pursuit of the Philistines into a holy war, into a jihad, if you will. And it's coming back here to haunt him. Because without seeking the mind of the Lord, without going to the Lord in prayer, without going to Samuel and asking the mind of the Lord, Saul proclaimed a fast, a, a religious fast, right in the middle of this pursuit. They're ching after the Philistines, and Saul says, hey, okay, we're going to have a fast this whole day, and nobody's going to eat for the entire uh, duration of this pursuit of the enemy. 
And this was at the very time when they had a desperate need for food. I mean, you know, you're, you're working all day, uh, chasing after an enemy, you're fighting, and you get famished. And so these men were, and yet in the midst of all, he proclaims a fast. And the idea, of course, was to cause every man to be so committed to the job that he made it actual spiritual, uh, uh, the result was supposed to be spiritual. And we know there is a spiritual aspect to it. But I think what the point is, Saul has acted foolishly here in proclaiming this fast. Violating laws, uh, God's command here. And of course, Saul becomes very indignant about this. And they were violating God's command. There, there's no, no way of getting around that. Let me turn back to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus 17, <coughs> beginning at verse 10. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who, who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from among the sons of Israel or from the aliens who, who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out the blood and cover it with earth. The point of the passage is the symbolism. The reason God made it so that blood was not, the animals were really fully, fully bled before the animal is prepared to be eaten is because of the symbolism of blood. It was the blood that was offered on the altar of sacrifice. It was the blood that was the symbol of atonement. Life is in the blood. Without blood, as we all know, we're dead. And so it's a violation of God's symbol of atonement. That is the problem here. It's not because certain molecules are worse than other molecules to put in your body here. Oh, well, I'm sure that is true, but I mean, that's not the point of what's being made here. It's violation, it, it's making trite that which God has made sacred. And that is the point of it all. And when you think about that, the extension of that, we can see that in our own society today. People who trivialize that which is, which is, is key to the essence of life. Don't have my microphone on. The other day, Frank Mayo forwarded to me an article which I had actually seen also in US News that's talking about David, the king of Israel. And modern archeologists and historians are now saying that David wasn't the man the Bible makes him out to be. That rather than being a great king and a, and a gallant man, that he was just a snivelly little tribal chieftain who went around cutting people's throats. You know, that he was a vile and vicious man. And they based this on some rocks they uncovered someplace, you know or uh, what they really base it on is a desire to minimize the scripture. You know, the whole truth of where Christianity is based on our belief in scripture. If we don't believe the truth of scripture, then the rest of it is just anybody's guess and anybody's desire. You know, it's all based on our own feeling and our own emotion. There's no authority behind it if we deny the scripture and just decide, well, this is what it ought to be. And, and this is what I hear preached from I don't go there and hear it, but I read about it and hear it sometimes on television, preached from some pulpits. And that is, well, God doesn't really uh, send anybody to hell. 
God doesn't really expect, I mean, blood to be involved in anything. It's just because somebody included it in the Bible doesn't mean it's so. Well, at that basis, there is no foundation for faith. It just becomes everybody's opinion. And the scripture is of no private interpretation. There is one interpretation that comes through the Holy Spirit, which is the correct interpretation. And this particular passage, I think, illustrates the importance of following God's teaching and believing the truth as it is proclaimed in the word. And the folly of what Saul did here is now manifesting itself in further foolishness on the part of his men. He accuses them of treachery. We read it there in the passage. He's implying that, that uh, by doing what they're doing, they're negating all that had been accomplished that day. To rectify the problem, he orders this large stone to be rolled up. Yeah, roll up this big stone here and go out there and tell everybody, you, you must bring your ox, you must bring the sheep that you intend to eat, you must bring it here and slaughter it here so that I can see that it's properly bled before you cook the animal. The passage that we just read ends very interestingly in verse 35. It says, And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. The first altar that Saul ever built to the Lord. Whether to appear godly in the eyes of the people or to persuade God that he was really trying to obey him, Saul had an altar built to the Lord. The statement that we read there, it was the first altar that he built to the Lord, may indicate that the author is saying here that Saul generally was concerned about honoring God, or he may be emphasizing the word first. He builds an altar, but this is the very first one. I mean, he's been king now for two years. He's been called before that. He's, he's 40 years of age, and he's never built an altar to the Lord before? Remember, if you read back in the life of Abraham, Abraham built several altars during the course of, uh, of his life. Let's read on at verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall we go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate, and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son shall, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. And Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. As you study the course of history, you become very 
much in wonder that certain individuals down through the course of time have been chosen to be king or queen over other people. And yet when you look at their lives, they were no more, they, they were not superior to other people. Uh, they were not more intelligent than, the other, uh, than other people. They, they were not more holy than other people. They were nothing more than other people. In fact, they were very ordinary people for the most part, except they were exalted by this position to which they were born and had not earned. Saul demonstrates the truth of being an ordinary man in an exalted position. Now, I realize in the United States, we have a history that, that emphasizes that anybody should be able to hold a position of honor in this country. In fact, Andrew Jackson decided that the President of the United States should be just an ordinary, average, everyday man because you didn't need superior intellect to be president of this country, which is very interesting because he chose a bunch of ordinary men to be in his uh, cabinet, and then when he discovered they weren't giving him good advice, he created a secret kitchen cabinet of a bunch of intellects <laughs> that he actually consulted to deal with the affairs of government. Yeah, that's what they call it, a kitchen cabinet. Because <laughs> they met at the kitchen at night, late and over coffee and donuts, or <laughs> the equivalent in those days. What we see here, looking at the life of this man, Saul, is a man who, without God's enlightenment, makes very foolish decisions. And all you can do is look down through the course of the pages of history, and you'll discover without the leadership of God, kings and queens have almost invariably made foolish decisions all through time. In fact, in my teaching of the history of the world, at the college, the students sometimes just wonder, they sit in amazement at these, all these wars, all these wars, and how many millions have died for nothing in all these wars. It's because you've got foolish people in leadership, foolish people who don't seek the mind of God in order direct, to direct the affairs of their land. Just how efficacious was this altar that Saul has made? What seems to be indicated in this passage Saul decided that after his men had refreshed themselves, that they should spend the night in completing the destruction of the Philistines and capturing all the wonderful spoil that yet could be taken. Now, these men were exhausted, and they were probably as, as exhausted as they had been famished, and yet they agreed to do whatever he thought was right to do. What, do, do whatever is right in, in your own eyes, they kept saying to him. We'll do whatever, whatever you say. Well, whether it was on his own desire or, or because of the advice of the priest, Saul decided to get God's direction in this. Shall I go ahead and pursue the Philistines or not? And so he decided, well, I better ask God. Well, he asked God. You remember in those days, God's will was determined by the casting of the Urim and the Thummim, some sort of objects, stone-like objects that somehow determined yes or no answers. Uh, cast by the priest under the divine direction of God to give wisdom to the person who has asked of God the answer. And he's very frustrated because no discernible answer comes. Now, we don't know how that can be, but somehow not the answer he was looking for was not coming, or no answer was coming from the casting of the lot. And so, what does Saul decide? Saul decides that I'm not getting any answer, not because I'm a jerk and haven't been paying attention to the Lord, but because there's sin in the camp. That must be the reason. There's sin in the camp. And he probably remembered how Joshua dealt with Achan. Remember all the way back to the days of Jericho and uh, how Achan had stolen some stuff and, and buried it, and that was sin in the camp, and God made that quite clear. Well, he probably remembered that story. And so he promised, 
As soon as I found out whoever's guilty for the sin that's been committed because I'm not receiving any answer from God, that person will die. Even if it's Jonathan, my son, and he had not the ghost, a ghost of a thought that Jonathan, his son, was really guilty of anything. Saul then told the priest, cast the lot to determine who was guilty here. He said, and he said to the Lord, give me a perfect lot. In other words, may the answer become clear. Identify the culprit through the use of the Urim and the Thummim. Well, they cast lots and the people were excused and it was Jonathan and Saul that were taken as, as quote, the guilty party here. And then the cat lots were cast again between Jonathan and Saul and, and Jonathan was described here as the culprit, as the guilty party here. And I think Saul was dismayed. My son, how can this be? But he pursued his course. And he asked Jonathan, what is it that you have done? Confess, my son. Now, remembering back to Jonathan's words, well, let me just read them again. In verses 29 and 30, remember after he has uh, eaten of the honey and one of the other soldiers said, you know, you're not supposed to do this because your, your father has put a curse on anybody who eats, it's a total fast. And Jonathan responds, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of the enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, many more of the Philistines would have been destroyed if the men could have eaten and rejuvenated themselves as they pursued the enemy and had the strength to do it. So Jonathan's accusing his father of a foolish, of a foolish oath here. Well, with that in light, in our mind, it seems very unlikely that his words in verse 43 should be taken at face value. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand, and here I am, I must die. Those are not repentant words. <laughs> Jonathan is not saying here that, oh, I'm so sorry, I violated your command, I must die to pay for this. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, here I am, and I've got to die because of your stupid order <laughs> is, is what's in applied here. I, I think he was defiant and accusatory here. It's your fault, Father. It's your fault. He doesn't say it in so many words, but he's implying that, I think, in the way, in the inflection uh, in his statement here. He did not believe, I am certain he did not believe that he was guilty because he had violated Saul's prohibition. Rather, he saw it as Saul's foolishness in making the prohibition in the first place. That's the basis of the problem. Notice, Jonathan does not excuse himself. He could have said, but Father, I didn't hear your order. I was busy killing Philistines while you were giving this order, and I didn't hear it until after I had tasted of the honey, so how can I be guilty? Nor could he have said, did he say, which he could have said, which the men will say, um, Who's got this victory going in the first place anyway? Who's the star of this victorious day here? I mean, who's the guy that was used of God to defeat the enemy? He doesn't say any of those things. Why? Why does he not defend himself? I think the reason is that he was demonstrating a faith in the providence of God. The question was probably in his mind. Did God deliver me from certain death at the hands of the Philistines? Here is Jonathan with his armor bearer climbing up, clawing their way up this cliff in the face of a full platoon of Philistine warriors who could have picked him off the cliff at any moment. And as soon as he got to the top of the cliff, instead of them knocking him back down with a sword through the neck or something, he kills the whole platoon. 
And then he goes on and attacks the full attach, detachment of Philistine soldiers and routs them, and the whole thing gets into chaos, and the Lord sends an earthquake, and, and the enemy flees down the hill, and then Saul comes along with his army, and they just kind of clean up. Would, would God do that? Would God preserve him only to have him die because of his father's foolish command? I think Jonathan thought not. I think he was trusting in God here. I think Saul now considers himself a man of great self-sacrifice in his willingness to say, okay, my son must die. I mean, this is his eldest son. This is the one who has demonstrated uh, superior military ability and superior intellect and superior faith to his own father. In fact, if Jonathan had been king instead of Saul, there probably never would have been a David to, to succeed Saul. We might ask, well, then why didn't God choose Jonathan instead of Saul? Well, I, I don't know that we can always probe the purposes of God to that depth, but we do see that God uses all of these people. He recounts them in Scripture for us so that we might learn. Do we always have to learn everything the hard way? <laughs> or can we learn a few things from instruction? Demonstrating great self-sacrifice, Saul says, my son will die. However, this is unusual, however, here. Saul's men, understanding the situation and understanding the, the nature of God here better than the king did, refused to allow Saul to carry out his judgment. Jonathan will not die. They, they defied their king. Jonathan will not die. And then to Saul's chagrin, they declared, because it was Jonathan who brought about this great victory. And it was Jonathan who was with God today. What were they saying? Well, I think they were saying directly, of course, Jonathan is responsible for this great victory. And indirectly, they're saying, what credit should you have, Saul? You weren't the one who brought this victory. You weren't the one who was walking with God today. The implication, I think, is that Jonathan, his son, was God's agent, not Saul, the king. Well, this won't be the last time that Saul faces this kind of humiliation. You all, I think, are familiar with the um, later part of this book of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel, when David appears on the scene and becomes more and more the center of attention. When the people of Israel will begin to acclaim that, yes, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Whoa, you know, for the king who had a pride that the size that Saul had pride and who was head and shoulders taller than everybody else and killed, considered himself to be a, a great warrior, that's a slap in the face. Oh, yeah, you've killed your thousands, but this guy over here has killed his tens of thousands. Well, that kind of deflated Saul, and verse 46 seemed to indicate that after that confrontation, Saul just says, fine, then give up this whole idea. We're not pursuing the Philistines anymore. Just go back to your tents. I'm going home and sulk. He doesn't say that here, but that's, I think, what he did. Let's read at verse 47. Now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon and Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. And he acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkachua. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. 
And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw, when Saul saw any mighty man of, or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. It's interesting that he wouldn't do that with David. That's true, yes. <laughs> right, David was a threat, right? Yeah. What we have in this, this passage here is a sort of a summary preview of the remainder of Saul's reign. The opening phrase of this passage, now when Saul had taken, or the Hebrew means, or secured the kingdom over Israel, that this refers to the fact that his position as king was not really secure until he had won this great victory over the Philistines. The victory guaranteed his kingship or secured his kingship in two ways. First of all, it won him his spurs, so to speak. He led them in victory over a hated enemy. He demonstrated his capacity to lead the people. And I mentioned to you before that one of the chief desires of Israel in having a king in the first place was to have somebody who would lead them in military victory. They got tired of waiting until God called up a, a, a shofad, a, a judge, and then called together a citizen army and went out and wailed on the enemy. They wanted a standing army and a king who was ready to carry them off into battle. And, and so Saul demonstrates that ability. And secondly, it broke the hegemony of the Philistines. How, what would good would be for Saul to be king over Israel if Israel was under the thumb of a, of a, of a neighboring nation? He would be like governor over a, a puppet province rather than true king over a sovereign nation. And so by driving out the Philistines, he becomes true king over a truly sovereign Israel. And that was very, very important for him. We discover that Saul will continue to fulfill his role as military leader. He does not shrink from that particular position. He not only fought the Philistines, but the passage here tells us that he also fought against the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Moabites. Now again, we have the Philistines on this side over here. We have the Ammonites directly to the east here. We have the Moabites to the southeast and the Edomites further to the south here. So this whole border along here, he was fighting against the, the peoples over here and then over here. And then the Amalekites will be mentioned and they're to the south. And then the kings of Zobah will be mentioned and the, the exact kingdom of Zobah, its borders have never been clearly defined. But we do know that it was up in the Damascus to Sidon area, up over in here. What is Lebanon and Syria? So Zobah was up in here. So we have to the west, to the, to the south, to the east, and to the north, all around the borders of Saul's kingdom. And the red line on here roughly depicts the, the border of Saul's kingdom at its height. Bashan was not his position. In fact, he will die here on Mount Gilboa, and his body will be nailed to the wall of this city. And Jerusalem is not his either. Uh, Jerusalem will fall to David and become the national capital later on. So Saul will fight against the enemies, trying to secure or even enlarge the borders. Saul, a man who disobeys God, is struggling all his life to just hang on to what little he can. David, the man who is after God's eyes, uh, after God's heart, will shove the border clear to the Euphrates River and clear down to, you know, it says the river of Egypt, probably the brook of Egypt down in the Sinai, and will we'll create this huge kingdom 
which this, this article in U.S. News, of course, denies. Says, oh no, David never had a king. He was just a petty little chieftain. I think the biggest attack, uh, Tom. What did they say about the kingdom of Solomon after that? Solomon was the one? I mean, because there's plenty of evidence that Solomon had that kingdom. They deny it. Like I say, it, it depends on, on what you do with the scripture. The, the thing of it is, if there were any other work, any other written work that dated back as far as the Old Testament did, with as much corroboration as the Old Testament has, historians would call it the, the greatest history book uh, of history. But because it is the Bible, and because it talks about God, why they debunk it. We are very grateful, I think, or should be in the Christian circle, for the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls validated the antiquity of the Old Testament, because people were already picking on the Old Testament in the 19th and 20th centuries, declaring, well, you know, it's just the creation of the Jews of the first millennium A.D., and, you know, our oldest manuscripts only go back a thousand years, and so how do we know what it really said in the beginning? And, and yet the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls helps see that, for example, if you go to the scroll museum there in Jerusalem, they have the whole Isaiah scroll stretched out completely around the inner part of the building there in this, this museum. And it's the Dead Sea Scroll Isaiah scroll. And basically it's identical. It translates all virtually identically with our Isaiah that we have today. And, and so... The U.S. News is, and it's, I don't remember who the author of the article was, but the U.S. News just presents most recent scholarly thinking in various areas. And the scholars are simply saying that because of what we're discovering in archaeology, which we think means this, that archaeology can't lie, whereas written words can lie. Tell them how big this thing is. You know, when, when I thought of going to see this, I figured that's why I hid it and see this. That's only, you know, you walk around it. But these women kind of scare the size of it. Oh, it's, it's, it's bigger than this room around, isn't it, man? Yeah. 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 It's a circular center area, and... It's underground. It's supposed to be bomb-proof. Yeah, it's supposed to be bomb-proof. Well, when you think you have the whole book of Isaiah in one scroll stretched out, you know, that's, that's a long scroll. What, what, about so wide? Yeah, about so tall. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing, papyrus. But again, it comes back to what God says, the just shall live by archeology. span Oh, no, I don't get you. The just shall live by faith. Faith in what? The word of God, what else do we have? What else do we have? We have the written word of God and if you have lived by this word, you've seen the miracles that have resulted from it. Lives transformed. Wonderful answers to prayer. I mean, this is not coincidence. We've seen it directly in our own lives, things that God has done directly as a result of prayer based in faith in his word. It validates itself. In this passage, the last phrase of verse 47 seems to indicate that Saul defeated his enemies and therefore maintained Israel's territorial integrity within inside those red lines. The word that's translated there, inflicted punishment. The Hebrew word actually means to condemn. And according to Dalich, the 19th century commentator, he says that this denotes Saul's 
condemnation and chastisement of these nations because of their attacks upon God's people. He delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Saul is described in this passage as valiant. We cannot diminish Saul as a warrior. Saul was a great warrior. Unfortunately, as we're going to read in the 15th chapter, his defeat of the Amalekites demonstrates, yes, he's got ability, yes, he can conquer, yes, he is valiant, but no, he's not obedient to the word of the Lord. And yes, he will defeat the Amalekites, but that defeat will be incomplete and be the further cause of his downfall. The last few verses of this chapter introduce us to some of the major players in Saul's reign. Jonathan, of course. Jonathan will continue to play a, a significant role. And Jonathan, as we know, will become a, a very intimate friend with David. I mean, something that displays the character of Jonathan is that Jonathan was not jealous of David, even though he knew that David was getting the throne that he should have gotten. And his daughter, Michael, who would become David's wife, and his cousin, Abner, who would become a great military commander. The last verse informs us that, yes, the Philistines were routed that day, but yes, the Philistines will continue to be a thorn in the flesh of Israel throughout the reign of Saul. Was Jonathan saying that if you hadn't inflicted us with this disorder, that we would have more fully defeated the Philistines that day, more fully wiped them out that day, so they wouldn't be the plague? They would continue to be, maybe. We're told that in order to better fulfill his role as king, Saul was wise enough to add to him, to attach to his staff, any mighty man or valiant man that came along. In those days, valiant men were far fewer than, quote, valiant men think they are today. Today, of course, it's easy to be tough because you pull out the little gun and blow somebody away. Even if you're only five foot tall and weigh 100 pounds, you can kill a 300-pounder with just a little bullet. In those days, you had to go hand to hand. You had to fight shield and sword, spear against the enemy. You had to be tough. You had to be strong. You had to be wily. And of course, we discover that during the reign of David, he attached even other men to his staff who were great warriors, what, what we would call champions. In the Middle Ages, uh, when knights in shining armor were charging across the landscape, each kingdom had its champion somebody who was better than all the other knights and, and who would become the, the individual who would go to battle against the champion from another kingdom in order to determine the outcome of the war. Why, why have armies kill each other when just two guys could go, go at it and whoever wins, the other side loses, and they all accept it. That was the David and Goliath concept. So champions were very important to the kings. Well, let me read into the 15th chapter here. Because this is one of the most important chapters in understanding not only the truth about Saul, but eternal truth that applies to all of us throughout all time. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death 
both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. That is a tall and explicit order. And to us today, who think of warring on, on, on the citizenry of a country as barbarism, we have a hard time understanding such an order. Most of us probably remember that when Hitler finally ordered the bombing of London on purpose, that was viewed as an act of barbarism by the West, and of course it wreaked uh, re revenge by the West on Germany by our bombing, or Britain starting to bomb German cities in retaliation. That was not considered to be chivalrous. But if you look down through the pages of history, chivalry has been more of an ideal than a reality. And as we look at this passage, as we're going to look at it next week, we have to understand that behind it is, a, is an eternal principle, something that overarches and overrides our feelings of, of chivalry or what is right and wrong, our emotions, and to understand that there's an eternal truth that is greater than it all. And that eternal truth is what has to be understood as we read a passage like this and as we read this whole 15th chapter and understand what God is saying and what God is doing and that God is saying the spiritual realm is so much more important than the physical realm. So much more important than the physical realm. And yet we live in a day, an age, when vast majority of people in this country, first of all, don't even believe in a spiritual realm, or at least they don't believe in it as we understand it to be from Scripture, or they don't care. We're just going to die like a dog and, and just go into oblivion and never have to pay for our sins. Is the idea that so many believe in. And uh, this is one of those passages of Scripture that teaches us that that is so far off base from the truth. Well, we'll look at that next week, or begin looking at it next week.